Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper, live at FantasyCon 2017. I'm Megan Lee. This is our wonderful guest of honour, Pat Cadigan. Uh, I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. So, um, we're really excited, obviously, to be joined by this year's guest of honour. Um, so she's science fiction, fantasy, horror, three-time winner of the Locus Award, twice winner of the Arthur C. Clarke Award, one-time winner of the Hugo Award. She just needs to stop collecting awards, apparently. <laughs> Um, so today we're going to be talking to Pat about the resurgence of cyberpunk, writing novels and short fiction, the relationship between technology and the mind, and trying to keep your ideas fresh over writing for, for quite a long period of time. So, yeah, shall we kick things off? Oh, okay. Just like straight away, we're just going to go into it. So you have written both short fiction and novels. Yeah. So is there, you know, do you find one easier than the other? Do you you approach writing the different lengths in, in different ways? Yeah, um, I'm, I would, I'm really more of a, a short fiction writer. I, in fact, if I, could, if I could get by on short fiction, I'd just write lots and lots of short fiction and occasionally cough up a novel. But, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, with short fiction, actually, uh, well, each story tells me what it is. And, uh, and it goes on for as long as it needs to go on, and then it stops. And generally, uh, novels, novels I, have to, I have to plan. I usually uh, get, a, um, get myself a general outline, and then I refer to it every so often when I realize that I've really gone off the reservation. And uh, uh, excuse me, my, my phone is, is making noises at me. I'm, I'm so terribly sorry. I'm that guy. <laughs> I'm that guy with the phone and everything, but um, uh, <laughs> she knows where I am. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I slept for 12 hours last night, and uh, now I can party anyone under the table. So <laughs> you've all been warned. You're all unnoticed, especially you, Megan. Um, but. Uh, uh, I, I like both forms, and uh, um, I remember when I um, when I when I when I happened to win my Hugo <laughs> for uh, for the girl thing and went out for sushi. I I realized that I had um, I had a novel in there, and so I you know I decided that I would write a novel. But Shona McCarthy gave me a really good good pointer when I when I was first writing novels that uh, grew out of my short fiction and just about all of my novels do grow out of my short fiction she said uh, don't start the novel version off with the short fiction because people who have read the short fiction will pick it up and they'll realize that they've started reading the short piece again and they'll feel like they could never get out of the story so start it you know either before or after or you know somewhere else so uh, so I realized actually that the novel in question took place about 150 years after um, Girl Thing and, uh, and so that's where I was but I had to um, I had when I, when I was thinking about Girl Thing, I had, to, uh, I had to fill in a lot of the world, you know, in the universe, in my mind. Things that I didn't even put on the page had to be settled with me so that I could write uh, an internally consistent story. And then when I got to the novel, um, it I just went nuts, you know. It was, what was the question? <laughs> 
novels and short stories, they're different. They're different. You know, the thing is, it's like every time I write a novel, I kind of need to learn how to write a novel all over again because every novel is different. It has its, um, it has its own particular problems, that, you know, driven by the plot and everything. So um, you know, I don't necessarily have to learn how to write a piece of short fiction over and over again to, you know, to complete a story. But novels are, novels are a big challenge for me. And I, I read an interview with um, with you where you were talking about how you don't like to write the same thing ever. You like to, all your novels like to you want to write something completely different. Yeah, I, mean, I do actually, <laughs> because I feel like you know it's like they cost so much. You should get something new every time. I like a new story, and uh, I I don't like to be uh, you know stuck in the same. Uh, in the same universe with the same parameters and the same characters, I just, you know, I guess I have sort of plot ADHD or something. Yeah. I mean, how do you, like, manage to do that? Because I know a lot of writers who, you know, have a, a loads and loads of books that they've written, often you start seeing the same themes and the same kinds of things coming up with their work. I mean, how do you get outside of that preoccupation with one kind of style and idea. Well, maybe uh, maybe it's because I have to learn how to write a novel over again, you know, that um, um, I, I don't do the same things because I, because I just can't. The demands of, of the particular story have, uh, have their, uh, have unique, um, uh, uh, you know, qualities. They have, uh, they have their own, um, their own their own progressions and uh, and they ask for uh, for their own way of telling. Do you have readers coming up to you and going, "Oh, I really like this particular book. Can I have another one?" Um, when I uh, when after Sinners came out, uh, people asked me when the sequel was coming, and I said never. And uh, I said that a few times, and then people stopped asking. <laughs> I, I have actually written stories that are written novels that are related. Uh, my first and third novels take place in the same universe, although not with the same characters. And my uh, my fourth and fifth novels are actually um, actually the same characters in the same universe, but told uh, the stories are completely different, and you don't have to have read one. To you don't if you read the second one you won't be lost you don't have to have read the first one to you know to get on with it there are mentions of things that happened in the first novel that was um, uh, tea from an empty cup and dervish's digital dervish's digital is another story with uh, some of the same characters but it's a completely different story and uh, and you don't have to have read tea from an empty cup to um, to have to understand Dervish's digital. I mean, that's Most people don't understand either one, so. <laughs> I mean, a lot of like science fiction and fantasy writing these days, you know, we see a lot of series and things. Is it, do you ever find pressure to write more of a series rather than standalone? Or, I mean, has it always just been, I'm just writing a standalone, I just have one idea and this is what I'm gonna do? Um, actually, with me, I find that my novel ideas often come out of my, of my short fiction. But um, uh, I've never had anyone come up and say, well, we want you to write a series, Pat. And uh, it may be because, um, uh, because my sales figures are so um, unique. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. Uh, 
No, no, <laughs> no, no one's ever no. asked me to, to write a series, perhaps because um, because I'm not kind of a I'm not a series kind of person. To be honest, I I mean I read a lot of science fiction fantasy. That's why I'm at things like this, uh, and I I love standalone novels. I I really do because I find so many of them. It's like okay, if I pick this one up, I've then got to commit to the next seven. Uh, <laughs> so I really like standalone novels. So that that works for me. But I mean, you. So we've talked about how you, you kind of use different genres, kind of subgenres and things, and you bring them in so that each book you write is different. Do you look at different subgenres and things to inspire that work, or does it just kind of happen naturally? The story tells me what it's going to be, and I serve the story. One of the things that I learned from um, my editor, Ellen Datlow. I, I learned an awful lot about uh, how to write good short fiction from, from Ellen when I was writing for her for Omni Magazine. And anything that doesn't serve the story uh, gets amputated. And uh, the, story, the story dictates everything. So um, it's, I don't think, I'm not thinking about genre necessarily when I'm, when I'm writing. And I'm not thinking about subgenres or, oh, this fits there, or, this fits somewhere else. That's, uh, that's a problem for, uh, for the marketing department. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not a marketing person, obviously. And uh, um, so I simply write the story as it is, and uh, it tells me what to write, and then when it's over, it stops, and I, you know, I read it over, and it's either a very good story or, it's, um, or it needs a lot of help. Usually it needs a lot of help two or three times. And, um, and, but you know, when I have a final story, um, I don't write it with think, well, thinking about genre. The only thing I, I always think about is I always write stories that have a fantastic element. And whether this is science fiction or fantasy or horror simply depends on the plot. You know, it's like, am I writing a, a ghost story or am I writing a, you know, a story with a lot of science in it? Usually I'm writing a, um, well, it's funny, a lot of my uh, short fiction is actually horror or dark fantasy. But all of my novels are science fiction. And it's not something that I've done on purpose. It just happened that way because of... Um, uh, you know, short story commissions or, or requests that I that I received, um, but I obviously I do have a few hard science science fiction stories like <coughs> my Hugo <coughs> winning story. But um, no, what was the question? <laughs> well, I was going to ask. You said the story tells me what to write, so. What's it like in your head? Is it like the characters standing there going, no, Pat, you know, we totally wouldn't say that? Or is it the story that just kind of creeps up in little bits where you're doing washing up? Or, or what is it? How does, how does the story speak to you? You know, they have, uh, they've done this research on people and they've discovered that an awful lot of people who are, you know, uh, officially sane <laughs> hear voices. And, um, and I hear voices. But I didn't realize that until like about two or three months ago, actually. I told my husband, I said, honey, I, I, should, I should have told you this, but I didn't know myself. I hear voices. And he wasn't surprised. But um, uh, no, I hear, um, I, hear, I hear things in my head. They are just extra loud thoughts. I hallucinate a little, too. But 
but I'm not tired enough to do that right now. So, and uh, the only voice I'm hearing right now is my own, and I never get tired of hearing that. <laughs> but uh, no, I hear. Um, Sometimes it's more of an impressionistic hearing. It's not in so many words. Mm. It's, uh, it's, a, it's like a gestalt of maybe a passage. And I realize what kind of story I'm writing. Now, sometimes I get a specific request for, uh, for a story, like um, um, I have a story in Ellen Datlow's Black Feathers anthology. And she said, need a horror story about birds? Go. <laughs> So, um, and I found out that there are feral parrots in London, and they just fly around and they roost in trees talking to each other. <laughs> but my story didn't want to be about that. It wanted to be about something else entirely. And, uh, but it sort of glanced off that idea and became something else. And as I was thinking about it, the story was was telling me and it was looking for a way to be told. And I found my way to it in a, a, actually I kind of wrote my way into it. It was one of those stories where I, I wrote my way in till I found out what was going on. And that was actually what I did with <coughs> my <coughs> Hugo winning story. <laughs> Tell me when I've said Hugo winning story too many times and I'll try to quit. Oh, it never gets old. No, it never does. It never does. It was four years ago, but I remember it like it was an hour ago. Um, it, sometimes I write my way into it to, to figure out what's going on, and other times I realize, okay, uh, here we are on this platform, and uh, I'm going to try not to exceed 7,500 words or something like that, whatever, whatever the limitation is for the, for the editor. But, um, and sometimes, uh, sometimes I, I, I don't. And then I have to, you know, cut. And then you, then you, it's by the, the cutting thing, you understand how much is real story and how much is that great stuff that sounded so good and you wrote it down, it still sounds good, but damn it, you have to cut it. And, uh, uh, yeah, that's the kill your darlings part. I didn't know what that meant until I had to, and there's so, I've got outtakes that would just, I'm sure that they'd win like, you know, everything. <laughs> But they're outtakes. Um, what was the question? Well, I I'll keep new, saying that. I, say I have a new question based on what oh, you said. okay. Do you think the feral parrot story in London is ever going to see the light of day? Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 I, 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 I think so, you know, and it's like, well, let's see, that's the thing about, about this, this genre. It's like you could say feral parrot story to three writers and you get four different stories, you know? <laughs> it's like that's... The wonderful thing, and that's why theme anthologies seem to work so well. As you say, bird horror stories go, and you get you know, you get stories that are just, and that's what I love about about the genre of the fantastic, whether it's science fiction or fantasy or horror. And I love to write all three things, and um, and and uh, and I do. I just love it. <laughs> And I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry, I'm wittering on and no, on. That's, that's the whole point of having you on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so, 
Um, you know, the you want to ask me about the resurgence? I didn't yes. know that cyberpunk had resurged because I didn't know it went away. Well, I found that um, there was kind of a, a peak of it, and then kind of it, it sort of went into the background. But there was still publishing, and then I've just seen a lot of sort of books come out recently. With, with well, let me let me explain what happened. Okay, <laughs> cyberpunk. The, the first wave was, uh, was about uh, the television, the telephone, and the internet were not merged yet. The Holy Trinity had yet to, to become one. Then they became one, and I guess that was where the lull came in, where everyone was readjusting, and now everyone's, everyone's kind of coming back to the idea that uh, cyberpunk this and cyberpunk that, but you're not going to have the same kind of cyberpunk that you had in the early to mid-'80s because it isn't that type of world anymore. And, uh, and it isn't, you know, it's like we have different things to contend with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, different things to contend with. So, um, uh, but all during that time, you know, it's like I've been, you know, I've been doing the same kinds of, you know, deep research on, you know, I mean, not the same kinds of things. I could not write a story. I wrote a story called Rock On that was in uh, uh, Bruce Sterling's anthology Mirror Shades. I couldn't write a story like that now because that doesn't happen now. You know, it's the, the types of of, uh, of things that happened in the story. We've moved on. Um, even a, a novel like Sinners, I couldn't write that in the same way because um, at the time, um, uh, the idea of being, being plugged into the internet all the time was, well, we, we weren't then, mm. you know. We didn't have that, so it was kind of a, of a you know, a new and crazy idea. But you got lots of it right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was an accident, you know, and that's that's the funny thing is people people you know say they want to read Sinners now, and I tell them there's not as much science fiction in it as there used to be. <laughs> and I, I said this to someone, and she thought that maybe it had been suppressed or something. And then, um, and I said, no, no, there's just not as much science fiction in it as there used to be, and uh, an awful lot has caught up with it, and now. Elon Musk wants to plug people's brains into the internet, and damn it, I want royalties. <laughs> you know, it's, I'm going to track that 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 son of a biscuit down and get myself some royalties um, because uh, uh, because I figured that out. Um, I'm not, I, but I wasn't the first to to think about you know plugging brains directly into the internet. However, I did research very carefully which parts of the brain would be um, would be most uh, which you'd want to plug in, you know, and and where you'd want to where you'd want to put them, and uh, um, and I did that with a book called. Um, Neurophilosophy, written by this neuroscientist named Patricia Churchland, and hardly anybody knows her, but she's so brilliant. And I remember, I you know, it's like I sat with this book for like hours, figuring out what areas of the brain to put brain sockets in to connect to um, to the internet or connect to a, a computer. And uh, and when I was done, I thought I I pretty much had it. You know, because I had such uh, such good research, but it was harder to do in those days because you couldn't. There, there was no Google grasshoppers, whippersnappers, and uh, 
And so uh, we, did, we did research the way we always did. We asked other science fiction writers for suggestions and books what to read, and they'd, you know, and they'd tell you. And there was a guy named, a writer, a science fiction writer named Ralph Robertson, bless his heart. He was writing a book about, um, oh, about computers and the internet, and he, it was, it was not, you know, if he was, he was still finishing it. It was unfinished, and he sent me all of the books so that I could, you know, so that I could get that part right because I was so. Uh, I don't have a scientific background. I don't, uh, you know, I don't have a science degree, and I don't have really any science courses uh, at the college level. So I, um, so I was heavily uh, autodidactic in that way. I mean. <laughs> There's, so when it comes to technology, despite you know all the technology we've already had come in and the you know the the way that we've kind of encroached on science fiction, um, we're still quite afraid of a lot of the technology that comes out. And I see it a lot with cyberpunk and, and SF in general. You have kind of thriller narratives that involve kind of this fear of what the tech's going to bring and this sort of thing. Like, what do you think is so ripe? about thrillers and that, that playing off the fear that works in these kinds of stories? Well, uh, this is nothing new, actually. When I, was, uh, when I was 14 years old, I had a job in a, uh, you'd call it a newsagent. We called it a candy store. <laughs> and uh, and there, were, there were people who came in, you know, my regular customers. And I remember one of them telling me, oh, my God, that's me again. <laughs> I'm sorry. I am so sorry. I'm that guy. I told you, I'm that guy. Uh, anyway, um, that's okay. Voicemail. Thank God for voicemail. Um, anyway, uh, he came in, and, he t- and in the course of the conversation, he happened to tell me that he was afraid of electricity. He had to ask his wife to plug things in. And I'm sure that he was not the only person in the world who ever felt that way. And I'm sure that way back at the turn of the 20th century, there were people who had to get other people to turn up the gas lamp, you know. And, uh, and if, you, uh, if you do an impromptu, impromptu survey, you will find the gas stove people, gas cooker people, and the electric cooker people. And the electric cooker people won't touch a gas stove. You know, and the gas stove people want—they want a—they want to cook with a flame that they can see. And then um, I remember I was a gas stove person all my life. And then when my mother got very old and she had age-related macular degeneration, we had to go to electric cookers because um, you know it's like we could have had gas stove all over the kitchen. But anyway, um, technology is something that people have always been a bit ginger about. And anytime you have something new coming in, you know, it's like, can you imagine now the people who are saying, you know, when it comes to transportation, I like something organic. I like a horse. You can talk to a horse. If an engine breaks down, what are you going to do with it? You know, it's like you can, you can pull up the, the, the hood, but, you know, it's like the, it can't tell you it's in pain. It can't tell you it's hungry. So, and it was probably like that, you know. And so now we have, uh, we have stuff that we can hardly imagine because our, our, you know, our computer chips are based on, you know, on quantum mechanics and you can't even explain quantum mechanics to people. Now, I, I can explain it because, you know, I, I know everything. <laughs> I know everything, but, you know, and, and, but it's just that 
it's baffling when and when you don't know exactly how it works. When you get when you get to com really complex machines where um, you can use a telephone and not know anything about electricity, about communications, about physics, about anything at all. You can just pick up a telephone and use it. And when we got to that point, we, we became more removed from, from technology. Our technology uh, uh, became more mysterious to us because prior to that, you built whatever you needed, you built machines that you needed, and you knew how they worked, and you knew how to use them right, and what happened if you didn't. If you didn't, so, so that's the uh, that's the whole thing, and you guys can ask me about quantum mechanics later, and I will explain the whole thing to you about, you know, it's like if you know where you are, you don't know how fast you're going, and vice versa. I can explain this so that anyone can understand it. After how many drinks? Oh no, I can do that sober. <laughs> Not many people can say that. You might need a few drinks to understand it, but no, you actually you won't need to be drunk either. <laughs> right, so I mean, given we are a podcast about women in genre fiction, yes, <laughs> let's move on a little bit to to that. So I mean, there's we, some other women. Hey, yes, yeah, we right. have some other women. Yes, um, but <laughs> you know, you have been writing since you know, for for a good while, so you <laughs> potentially Over, uh, oh, about forty years, honey. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. We potentially can see sort of the changes in the industry, and I mean, have. Have you seen oh, that yeah. Have oh, you yeah. Seen yeah. more women, less women? The, oh, the... no, more women, more <laughs> women. You know, it used to be that you had to hunt up, as, as you know, and really as, as little as 25 or 30 years ago, you had to hunt up some women, and you had to hunt up women who were writing hard science fiction. And these days, um, these days you have to go out of your way to avoid them. Um, and I'll, tell, I'll, I'll give you an example. The Barbican in London did this science fiction exhibit, and I took a look at it. And uh, they, had some, they had some science fiction speakers, and then have one woman science fiction writer speaking. They had two women scientists, but no women science fiction writers. And I thought, they went out of their way to avoid women science fiction writers, because you, you, know, you can't hardly throw a rock without hitting one. And... Uh, I, I, the thing is, is, as the science has become actually more complex, uh, it has also actually become a little bit easier for writers to use it in their in their fiction. Um, and uh, and you have writers like Justina Robson and Tricia Sullivan and Lauren Bucus who are doing you know it's like hard hard science fiction and hard assed you know, hard-ass plots, you know, it's not for sissies. And, um, and you know, writers like Liz Williams have been, have been, you know, doing that all along, and, and she's one of these people who has been cruelly, cruelly overlooked. And, uh, and, you know, it's like her work is out there and people should, should take a good look at it. She's also been one of the people who's, uh, who has dared to enrage the purists by mixing science fiction and fantasy, and my hat's off to her for that. You know, it's like, hey, if someone's mad at you for what you wrote, you might have, you might be doing something good. Um, I'm happy to see that we have become more inclusive. Uh, Nora Jemison, N.K. Jemison, told me once that um, if it hadn't been for Octavia Estelle Butler, 
she would have thought that there was no place for her in science fiction. And that's how it is. When you don't see people who look like you, you will think that there is no place for you. And that sounds, that may sound hard to understand when all the people that you see look like you. But when you see only one non-white face in this room, you know, you could get, the, if, if it were reversed, if this were all people of color and one white face, pe white people coming in might think, oh, this is, this is something for person of color. Excuse me, there is not only one person of color in here. I don't see very well. <laughs> um, pardon my eyesight, please. But still, there is, this room is predominantly white. This field is becoming more and more inclusive. It's still predominantly white, but we are gaining ground. And the more ground we gain, thank you. <laughs> I get that a lot. The more inclusive we become, um, the better we are, the stronger we are. And this is nature's way. You know, it's like if you look at nature, nature, whatever, whatever kind of ecology you're looking at, it needs a diverse group to survive. If, you, uh, if, the, if the gene pool gets smaller and smaller, you mule out and die. If you have a large gene pool, lots of different kinds of things, the, the strengths reinforce each other. I don't have science in my background, as I said, so I'm not explaining, you know, this sort of thing very well. But I do know that diversity is nature's way, and, you know, it's like sometimes nature gets it right. Now, the point of civilization is to be more compassionate and kinder than nature, who is also red in tooth and claw. So, um, and, and people have said to me, well, don't you think this political correctness thing has gone too far? And, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't take crap from people who want to call me politically correct because <laughs> that is a club that people use to hit people over the head who are not happy with the status quo. We have not unthinkingly excluded many people. Now it is time to be more mindful and see, use our eye, open our eyes and see and be more inclusive. That's what your intellect is for. Your intellect is not to walk around unthinkingly doing things. It is to see what you should be doing right that you aren't doing and do more of it. What was the question? <laughs> oh yeah, more women. Yeah, yes. Something um, um, we've seen quite a lot, um, obviously around, and this is why we kind of started the podcast in the first place, was why is it that um, I mean, you're talking about Liz Williams, for example. Um, science fiction and fantasy, spec fiction as an umbrella genre, is you know supposedly about literature or forward thinking. It's meant to be about uh, worlds where we're not recreating our own institutions of gender. Um, but yet, it appears to me to be one of the most conservative genres out there, and it's actually trailing behind you kind know, of other genres in well, representation. Well, you know, actually, it. Back in, the, back in the bad old days, when we had editors who believed that, um, that science fiction readers would not read a story that, uh, that didn't have a protagonist that was a white male, a white straight male, 
there were writers who sneaked things in. And you have to read these stories very, very carefully in order to find out that they've sneaked a black protagonist in. Uh, there's a gay couple in a, in a Heinlein juvenile. You have to read very carefully to figure it out. It, because he wouldn't have been able to sell the book, they wouldn't have taken it. But there is a gay couple in um, Tunnel in the Sky by Robert Heinlein. Heinlein was actually a very progressive man in terms of alternative sexualities and women. Of course, Heinlein did think women were a superior form of life. So um, you may not think so, but he kind of has a bad reputation from, from what's been said about him. I knew him very well. And I knew him for uh, for quite a while before he died, and uh, and and I so I know these things. But uh, for instance, there's a story by Richard Wilson called "The Watchers in the Glade," and um, it's about people who have been marooned on a on a planet uh, by some space pirates. And there's there's a gay couple, and they are not referred to um, derogatorily in the story. They are simply a fact. And you have to read very carefully to discover that the main character of the story is black. He's a black man. And, uh, and the hint comes very early in the story when he's thinking about something that happened to uh, a relative who was a math professor. And he was, a math professor who was framed for a crime and, uh, that he didn't commit, completely railroaded and put on a chain gang in the South. This happened to black people in in the U.S. in the South. This is that could no uh, there could be no other character but a black person, and uh, people would read over that. Very the editors would read over that, but people who knew, you know, read very carefully. See, in America, a lot of the editors and science fiction writers, like for example uh, uh, Isaac Asimov and uh, Donald Wolheim, just to name two examples. These were, um, they were also Jews, and Jews were very conscious of being marginalized and excluded and even, uh, you know, wiped out. Mm. And, uh, and they, were, they were conscious of this, and they were conscious of, you know, what was happening. So they couldn't always do it explicitly, but they tried, you know. And they wanted, they wanted the, uh, the, uh, the diversity and the inclusiveness more than uh, than you generally know, and uh, it's it's just because I'm so old. I met a lot of these people, you know, in person, mm -hmm. and I remember when they're talking about all the new writers, you know, and a lot of them were women, and a lot of them, not a lot of them, but a few of them weren't white, mm -hmm. and they were happy about it. They were happy about it because we were supposed to have the new ideas. Mm -hmm. Other worlds, you know, other worlds, other, other kinds of minds, other, other civilizations, and we can't even include most of, most of the ones here, mm -hmm. you know. So a lot of people did want it, you know, and uh, the editors were stumbling block, but, uh, you know, editorial change, and, and uh, now you, you have to go out of your way to avoid a woman editor, you know. Um, and uh, and it wouldn't you wouldn't be doing yourself any favors, so um, yeah, that was the question, right? <laughs> it was. Yeah, yeah. It's a good uh, answer. Yeah, no, it's, we're doing we're actually doing better than you would think. There has been some pushback from a small reactionary group, 
but I think it proved that uh, it proved actually that the field wants diversity, it wants inclusiveness by what happened when that small group gained the uh, gained the Hugo Awards. We all Awards. know who we're talking about. Yes, yes, and and what happened is there was suddenly a surge of of you know people bought. Uh, supporting memberships mm -hmm. to that convention and voted and someone said wow you know it might be all gamer geek people I said no mm -hmm. I don't think so and it turned out to be our science fiction fans and readers and writers who said no yeah. absolutely not mm -hmm. uh, you know life goes on and a lot of things change and things often change for the better mm -hmm. and the better changes that we're seeing were people like Nora Jemison coming into the field, and, and Nettie Okorafor, yeah. mm -hmm. and, uh, um, uh, you know, it's like they're just such brilliant writers, mm -hmm. and if, if Nora had not, you know, had, had felt that there was no place for her in science fiction, we would be the losers, and we wouldn't even know it, you know? So, um, so yeah, I'm for it. <laughs> I'm for it. I mean, you talk about writing diversity and including a diverse cast of characters and so on, but there's, there's a lot of... Um, pushback sometimes on you know someone like me a cis white female but I want to include characters of color I want to include you know, non-binary gender and all that kind of thing and you know yes I want to research and try to get things as right as possible like where's that line how do you deal with you know trying to include that representation without being accused of sort of um, what's the word I'm looking for but appropriation <laughs> Yes, thank you. Appropriating. Um, okay, I would not attempt to write a story about um, about what it's like to grow up uh, in the barrio as a Latina woman. On the other hand, uh, if I have uh, if I have a number of characters, say in a novel, and there's no reason why some of them can't be white, I mean, if there's no reason for them to be white, then there's no reason why they can't be other people. And um, see, in the United States, you have you have areas that are you know that are so predominantly white, and they've been so for so long that uh, um, people really don't know anything different. And then you go to urban areas, and uh, and of course you know that is different. And then you go um, and then you come over to this side of the world, and uh, in London. Uh, when my when when we moved to London, my son was 11 years old, and he said, "I am in heaven." You know, they have to have signs in my school in six languages because of all the all the you know all the different kinds of people. And he would bring home he would bring home Rasta kids, and he'd bring home Sikhs, and he'd bring home you know he'd bring home everybody you know. And I told him everybody's welcome in this house. And uh, I said, if they, you know, provided they don't pick up any small valuables, but the place is always so cluttered that uh, you wouldn't know what's valuable and what isn't. So, and if you pick something up, it might, thank you, thank you, uh, it, might, uh, it might actually help us out. But um, uh, he, uh, he loved that, you know, and if you take young children into, you know, into areas where there are lots and lots of different people, they will probably love it. I'll tell you something else that I have to brag about my son. You know, I had one, and I'm so proud of him. And uh, you know, it's like if there's anything I did right, it was have my son. But we were watching TV one day when he was about five, and uh, they were doing this ad for uh, it was back to school, 
and they had this this notebook called the Trapper Keeper, and uh, and we'd gotten a note from school, no Trapper Keepers anyway. So, but after the ad was over, my son said, "I don't want that," and I said, "Is there some reason you don't want this?" And he said, "I don't like that ad." And I said, "Well, what was wrong with it?" He said. The kid who didn't have the trapper keeper and was he was made to look like a like a real idiot. He said he was the fat kid, and they always do that to fat kids on TV, and I don't like that. And now my kid did not know from politically correct, you know, all he knew was that this was the latest ad in a series where a fat a fat child was made to look like an idiot because they didn't have the the latest thing on TV and my kid could pick that out now of course my kid is a genius and a giant you know <laughs> among lesser but the fact is he was a 5 year old and 5 year olds you know is, i i think he was not wise beyond his years at 5 but he'd seen this and kids do see this and if you encourage this sort of thing and encourage them to express this you will find that kids kids automatically um actually rise you know it's like they uh the angels of their better nature are there and will speak to them and they will express that um boy what was the question <laughs> i'll do this a lot a lot, lot of what was the question Um no it's it's no but see this is this is the idea is people actually do want to be in want to include and they want to be included and uh and there may be a few people who feel threatened by that because it means there's more more competition well you know it's like hey welcome to our world i hope you like it here uh i was um I, when I told my mother that I wanted to be a science fiction writer, she said, "Well, actually, why don't you write real things?" Mm-hmm. And well, that was, you know. But then I, I kind of turned her because I turned her on to Ray Bradbury, and they were the same age. And she got all, you know, all misty about Dandelion Wine. So Ray Bradbury was okay, and then for science fiction was okay. And I used the same ruse on her, actually, that uh, Isaac Asimov used on his parents. he showed uh, his his parents were were russian emigrants and they owned a they owned a candy store with a magazine rack and he showed them you know astounding science stories and he said papa would it be okay to to read a book about science and his father oh yeah yeah of course it would be okay to read a book about science so that's what i told my mother you know it's like it's all about science see it's good it's all about science Well, I was brought up on science fiction from my parents, so I couldn't escape it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we we've only got five minutes left. Um, Gosh, I hope nobody else wanted to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I should apologize. You know, it's like you wind me up, and you just have to say stop, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been great having you. I don't know if we have really any time. Maybe for like one super enthusiastic question. Yeah. No, they no. should know everything by now. No. No. <laughs> Just oh. right, yep. I'm not terribly clear. Uh, have you ever won a Hugo? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> Now, I'll tell you something. Um, you know, I always thought that the sad puppy thing 
was bad sportsmanship. At heart was bad sportsmanship. They'd been riding for seven years, and they hadn't had a Yugo. Well, I, I, I won my first Yugo, and it was, I'd been a professional rider for 33 years. And when that nomination had come 20 years to the day after my previous nomination, I was nominated previously five times in various, various categories, and I hadn't won. And my feeling was that in order to win a Hugo, you had to write really, really well. <laughs> now, sometimes, you know, it's like it just depended on, you know, the, the voting pool that you had, you know. But I was raised to you applaud the winner, whoever it is, and then you go and shake their hand and you say, congratulations, I'm really happy for you, even if you had to lie about the really happy part. <laughs> But, you know, and I thought that the whole, you know, that the whole thing was, you know, it's like their mothers must have been tearing their hair out because I know that they must have taught, tried to teach these guys good sportsmanship, you know, and it's like, well, if you don't get nominated for an award year after year, just deal with it. But the truth is they were nominated. Um, uh, both the, the main ring, ring had both been nominated for the, the, um, the Campbell for Best New Writer. I didn't get one of those. Where were they when I was languishing, you know? I didn't get a Campbell nomination. It didn't kill me, you know? I didn't get, I didn't get a Hugo till I'd been, you know, for 33 years. Well, that didn't kill me either. And I might never get another Hugo. I don't know. But the idea is that I don't, you know, it's like I don't care because I get to be a writer. And this is the first time in my life that I have not had to fit my writing in around a job, or raising a child, or taking care of an elderly parent. Um, I can't, can't work anymore because I'm just absolutely unemployable. Um, my kid grew up. My kid grew up, he's, and he's fabulous. He is just fabulous. And uh, my elderly parent went on to her reward at last. <sighs> I thought she'd never leave. <laughs> now, my mother lived to be 92 from a family that most people didn't make 70. It was a terrible surprise to her. <laughs> um, and to many of us who were there with her. I'm kidding about my mother, mostly. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and now um, my, my husband, Chris, just sort of waits on me hand and foot and occasionally gives me his, his viruses, or I give him mine. And we share everything. And, uh, but I have, uh, I, I, we, don't, we don't have a lot, you know. But we have, we have what we need to, you know, to, to stay, live indoors and, and that. And... Uh, and that's really, uh, you know, it's like, well, what else do you actually need, you know? It's like a limousine is a car. And, and, and it's a pain in the ass to have one of those in London anyway. Um, but uh, the fancy stuff is, uh, uh, you'd be surprised how well you can do without it. Of course, you know, it's like I grew up below the poverty line when I was a kid. So um, if I were, you know... If I could go back there and look ahead to how I live now, I'd be like, wow, wow, look at that, look at that. So, um, but no, we don't, we don't have much, but, uh, but we have everything we need to survive, and, and I can write. 
you know, and that's uh, that that's what I want. Yeah. That's what I, I I do what I want, mm-hmm. and I don't think that there are many billionaires who can say that, except for well, you know. <laughs> <laughs>